Amen. Well, for the first time in the history of Trinity Church, I'm not going to ask you to turn to Mark this morning. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark ever since we started back in September, and we brought it to a close last week. The reason we started at the Gospel of Mark is that Mark is probably the first written account of Jesus' life, and we thought it made sense to begin our church at the beginning of the testimony to Jesus. That's a similar philosophy that's driving our choice of the next series that we're going to do. This morning, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Genesis. We are going now from the beginnings of Christianity, the church and its origins, and, and, and the, the works, the life, the teachings of Jesus that give birth to the church. We're going from that to focusing on the beginnings of everything that is, the beginnings of the world. Genesis is an entire book of beginnings. We are not going to go verse by verse through Genesis because to do that well would probably take us several years, and I don't have that kind of patience, and I'm guessing you probably don't either. What we're going to do is a bird's-eye view on this book. We want to take about ten weeks to try to capture the essence of its message. So we're going to take passages that are representative of its major themes, and we're going to look deeply at those passages and use that as a way to get into the message of the entire book. That's one, that's one way to get into the, the series that we're starting this morning. I want to bring up another layer to it, though. So this, this morning is the first Sunday in April, and it's three weeks away from Easter. And Christians all over the world are celebrating right now, preparing for that day in a season that we call Lent. Now, there are special texts that are set aside for every Sunday that, that churches that are really into those church calendars will, will preach on every single year. We've already been looking a lot at texts from the life of Jesus ever since September. But I think that looking at the beginning of Genesis is especially relevant for us as we prepare to think about the meaning and significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Because in the beginning of Genesis, we have the, the, the initial steps in a storyline that leads ultimately to Jesus and his death and resurrection. We have the creation of the world where God makes for himself a people in his image that are to worship him as God. And we have evidence of, the, of their failure to do that. In the first three chapters of Genesis, we see death set in as the penalty for failing to give God his due. It's really those first three chapters that set us up for why Jesus himself had to die and for why his resurrection matters so much. Jesus' resurrection shatters a pattern that had been established ever since the beginning of time. So I hope that the next three weeks will help us to reflect well when we get to Easter on just what's so important about what Jesus has done. So that, that's a bird's eye view of why we're about to study Genesis. Genesis begins with an amazing poem, a poem that celebrates God as the creator powerful and wise maker of everything that is. It's, I think it's one of the most remarkable pieces of literature in the, in the Bible. Unfortunately, it's also a piece of literature that's been picked apart since the beginning of mo the modern science era because it's got language in it that seems to, to really conflict with what scientists are telling us about the nature of the world. My goal for today is not to get into the debates about what the days in Genesis mean, for instance, or, 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 or how we might be able to, to reconcile this account with what we know from science. My goal for today is to help us recapture what this text was trying to do all along. 
this text, like any other text, needs to be approached in light of what kind of text it is. You approach history different than you would approach a poem. In this case, we want to understand what it is that the author is using this distinctive and beautiful way of communicating to actually communicate. That's our goal for today. I think once we, once we probe into this text, we see that the author is trying to answer questions that have been driving the minds of philosophers since the beginning of time. Questions about who we are, why we're here, where we're headed. I think if we look closely in Genesis chapter 1, we see something about where we came from. I think we see something about why we're here, why there's something rather than nothing. What's the point of our existence? And I think we see something about who's in charge. Will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1? I'm going to read the poem for us. And if, if you found it, will you stand with me? In honor of God's word as we read. This is Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser night to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. 
and there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I think verse 1, right out of the gate, states the plain and simple thesis that's going to guide the rest of this chapter. The rest of the chapter works to unpack the simple statement in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. According to Genesis, everything that exists, the heaven and the earth is sort of a, a, a shorthand way of referring to absolutely everything that is. Everything that exists, exists because God decided to create it. Now, that may sound really simple to you, maybe even a little bit boring if you're really familiar with this text and with the idea that God is the creator. But I think if we understand this claim in light of the other claims about where the world came from at the time that this text was written, and I think if we understand it in light of other claims about where the world came from today that are, that are in vogue today, it appears not boring but radical. I want to look first at the, at the details of the passage. I want to show you what it is that this author was trying to build in this poem. And then once we've unpacked the details of the passage, then I want, us, I want us to focus in on how significant it is in light of these other options. That's, that's what we're going to do on question number one. The question we're after is, where do we come from? And Genesis 1.1 tries to answer it. The first one is a summary. The details begin coming in verse 2. To understand exactly how he's getting at this, I think we need to understand something about the way that Hebrew poetry worked, ancient poetry in this time, and to understand two main elements in this passage. The two main elements are the structure of this poem and the symbolism that he's using to build the poem. If we get into those, we get, if we can get into those two components of this passage, we get the message that he's trying to communicate. The structure of the poem and the symbolism that lies behind the poem. The structure follows from verse 2. In verse 2, we don't get an explanation for why what God had made was now formless and void, why there's this sort of chaos. He doesn't go there. He doesn't, he's not interested in explaining how that happened, but, but it creates a tension. We're told that God created everything, and now we're told that this world is, is not what it needs to be yet. It's formless and void, and there's this ominous darkness over everything that exists. The rest of the chapter unpacks God's response to the formlessness of the world and to the fact that the world was void and empty. The first three days of creation push back against the formlessness of the world, a world that's just sort of nebulous and not what it needs to be. Think about it. God works and acts into this scenario creating light. He separates light from darkness. He gives some order to the days. Day two, God separates the, the heavens from the seas. He separates the water and brings some order there. Day, day three, he takes what had been formless, what's now been separated into light and darkness and, and into to heavens and, and the seas, and he separates the land from the water. 
He, create, he, he causes land to, to form and the seas to, to, to be pushed back. I think in those three days we see God responding to the formlessness of the world. The other problem was that the world was void or empty. And on days four, five, and six, we see God filling the world that he's now brought order to. In day four, he, he creates the lights to govern the, the, the light and the darkness. He creates the sun and the moon and puts stars up there. Day five, he creates uh, creatures to fly in the heavens that he's created and to swim in the water that he separated from those heavens. In day six, he creates uh, creatures to walk upon the earth that he separated from the waters. Do you see? Hopefully this, this structure is starting to make sense. The problem is that the world was void and formless. In days one to three and days four to five, the poet is describing God as the one who, cre- who created order and filled it with the things that he chose to fill it with. I think the point here is that the poet is less interested in telling you when God created everything and in, in what order and how, what got created first and what came later, than he is communicating that God created everything, that there was nothing when God started and that after he started God was responsible for everything that exists. The poet is drawing a parallel between what happens on days 1 to 3 and days 4 to 6. That's the structure. If you don't understand the structure, you won't understand what this poet is after. The symbolism, though, takes us even deeper into what he's doing. It's hard for us, I think it's a little bit hard for us to connect with why symbolism mattered so much to the ancients. I really can't explain it, certainly not the way that we typically think. But to people in the ancient world... Numbers in particular carry great symbolic weight. Maybe you've seen the movie Pi. It's a, it's a movie came out, I guess, back in the 90s about this guy who goes crazy trying to understand the numbers that are at the structure of all the universe. And what he's, what he's using is all these ancient Hebrew texts where they talked about numbers being behind everything. And in the ancient world, the number that mattered probably more than any other, the number that symbolized perfection, something that's complete and whole, was the number seven. This whole poem is built on the number seven. You can't see this quite as well in the English translation, but if you were to look at the Hebrew, and I'm trusting people who know about Hebrew. I didn't look at the Hebrew myself, but I'm trusting that they know what they're talking about. We're told that the the first verse in Genesis chapter 1 has exactly seven words in Hebrew. And from there on out, seven or a multiple of seven occurs all through the text. So, for example, there's seven words in verse 1. In verse 2, there's exactly 14 words. Another example is that the name of God is mentioned exactly 35 times. Another multiple of seven. The, the, the word for heaven, the word for earth, each mentioned 21 times. And then, of course, the best example of seven, this number of, complete, of completeness structuring this passage, is that we're told God creates everything in seven days. The seventh day was a day of rest, but but part of the whole. And the number seven is the key feature that drives the whole thing. Why? The point of the number, the point of the structure of the poem, the point of the symbolism in the poem is that God created absolutely everything that is. It's the number of completeness and perfection. I think the implication is that this author was much less interested in chronology in what happened on day one and day two and day three, or is this a 24-hour day or an era, or is it... It doesn't have any reference like that at all to history. I don't think we need to push this text that far. Serious Christians disagree about how the world came about and in what time period. And they're going to continue disagreeing until the end of time. But if it's been a hurdle for you, if accepting Christianity 
has been hard for you in part because you don't know how in the world you're going to reconcile Genesis chapter 1 that you understand as a period of seven 24-hour days with what you know from what scientists tell us about the way the world works. I think the point here is that it doesn't have to be. There is some room here to understand this text in many ways. The only thing that's required for you to understand is that God is the one who's responsible for everything that is. Here's why that claim matters. That claim matters because Israel's neighbors were pagans. Israel was surrounded by peoples that were more powerful than them, that were larger than them, that in some ways seemed more successful than them, and they were, they were worshiping gods that they identified with, like all primitive peoples around this time. They identified with the sun and the moon, with the powers of nature, like the weather, like the seas, all of these things that controlled how you lived and whether you succeeded in life that were outside of your control, they assumed they were deities, and so they worshipped them and tried to manipulate them into, into doing what they wanted them to do. Israel, worshipping its one true God, was surrounded by a bunch of people who understood God very differently. And what this poem does at the very beginning of their sacred texts is it paints a picture of completeness that, that shows God and God alone is responsible for the things that these other nations are worshiping as divine. God created everything, including the sun and the moon and the stars that they think are gods. Their gods are no gods, but merely the creatures of the one true God. That's why this claim was radical when it first appeared in Israel's context. The claim, though, that God created everything that is is still radical today. I've already mentioned that I really, I really don't think this text has to hold you back if you're convinced that the world was created over a long, long period of time. But where this text does confront you, what you can't get out from under is its claim that God is responsible for everything that exists. If you're convinced that the material world is all that there is... If that's your view, I'd encourage you to think a little bit more carefully about it. This view that the material world is all that exists is not the same thing as, as evolution. That's simply a theory for explaining how we got to where we are, that, that, that beings changed over time, taking on their current form through ad, adaptations to different circumstances as those circumstances changed. Some succeed, some don't, and that's how you explain how we got here. That, that's evolution. That's very different from what we might call naturalism. That's the claim that not only did we get here through this process of sort of trial and error and adapting to circumstances, but those circumstances themselves are blind. They exist necessarily and not because of anything outside of the natural world. The natural world is all that there is. The nat naturalism's belief that there's no reality besides what we can see and touch, nothing besides the material world that exists on its own apart from any outside force. And if, if that's your view... I wonder if you can live with the implications. Now, I'm no scientist. I'm not going to try to wow you with my knowledge of how the natural world works. I'll be out of my league there. But I'm told, for instance, that there's basic consensus among scientists today that the world had a beginning, that there was this explosive moment in time where everything that is now first came into existence. And we can measure through calculations and various instruments the rate at which all the material particles in the world are expanding away from each other. And that shows if you could trace it all the way back, there was a moment in time where it began. Pretty much everybody agrees with that now. That fact of a beginning is something that's measurable scientifically. 
But what caused that beginning? That's not something that your microscopes are ever going to be able to reveal. If you're so convinced that that beginning happened on its own, that there was nothing outside of the natural world that is responsible for that explosive beginning, I want you to understand that you are taking a leap of faith there, that you've gone beyond what your experimentation can yield. Consider another example. Perhaps you don't believe in the supernatural because you only trust in things that you can discover using your reason, right? Your senses. Only things that you can see and touch and measure and experiment on are things you'll believe. If, th- if that's the way you look at the world, I wonder if you've thought about the fact that you don't have any basis, really, for any confidence that your reason or your senses work. On your view, what we have, how we think, how we know, is a, res- is a response to our desire and an attempt to survive. So somehow reason and our senses give us an ability to adapt that we wouldn't have otherwise. Survival is their goal. No evolutionist that I'm aware of argues that that accurate representations of reality, understanding things as they are, is the goal of your senses, that we can be sure about that. You can't know that they're telling you true things unless you know, I think, first of all, that they were designed by someone who wanted them to tell you true things, who wanted you to be able to understand this material world and therefore gave you faculties that work well. If they don't work, if they're just about survival, then we know they've helped you survive, but we don't know that they're true, that they can yield true knowledge. Well, the answer of Genesis to the main question, where have we come from, is a clear one. We're here now because God created everything that exists. I think that's an answer that makes better sense out of the world that we live in and the things that we take for granted than any other view that you could come up with. That's question one. Why, though, is there something rather than nothing? This is, this is Genesis' answer about where the world came from, that it's a creation of God. But that doesn't answer a separate question, which is why we exist at all. What is the point of this world? And that's, that's a question philosophers have been searching out forever. Why do we exist? Why is there anything at all? Is this world here to serve some purpose? Or is it just here by accident? That just, just because? The answer to that question, where we come down on that question, shapes everything about how we live in the world. And it's a question that, got, that the, the Bible answers repeatedly, beginning right here. One of the most important elements of this passage, one of those things, those poetic devices that gets mentioned over and over again, is God's statement that what he has made is good. At the end of every day, God looks at what his hands have made that day, and he pronounces over them that it's good. What's, what's going on there? He's saying that it's right, that it's as it should be, that it's beautiful, but what's good about it? Reading this statement in light of the rest of the Bible, I think we can confidently claim that it's the reason he, claim, he calls it good, what's good about it, is that it's a reflection of God himself. It's a reflection of him and on him. It tells us something about what he's like. That's why he created the world, and that's what makes it good. The Psalms have some of the best echoes of this idea. Psalm 19 is one of my favorites. That's the one where the psalmist celebrates God and the heavens that declare his glory and that that are his handiwork. The world is good, according to that psalm and to many other examples we could come up with, because it shows us something about what God's like. It reveals his character and his power and his wisdom. 
That's especially true of his highest creation. Did you notice that in this, in this poem it builds towards his creation of humanity? And that what sets humanity apart from the other things that he's made is that humanity, in a way that nothing else is, represents his image. That he's, he's, he's made in the image of God as, a, as the closest, best representation of what God is like. I think if we start there and see that's why God, and, and see that the, the fact that humanity is created in his image is why God says it's very good as opposed to just good, we can work our way back to our conviction that everything that he's made is good because in some way, at some level, it reflects what God's like. So, so why did he create? Did he create because there was something that he lacked that he needed to, to fill up some sort of thing he needed to compensate for, and that's why he needed a world that he could interact with. Christians have always claimed that there's no way that can be true, given the assumptions of the Bible and, and God's perfection. So why? Why would he not? Why would he, why would he create a world rather than just enjoy the, the same kind of existence that he'd enjoyed throughout all of eternity before? One of my favorite answers to this question was written over 200 years ago by a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who wrote this book called the end for which God created the world. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it if you've got time and a lot of willpower to finish it. One of the things that he says over and over again, one of the analogies that he draws, is that he, he, he feels the weight of this potential objection that God would have had to create because there was something lacking in God. And he says, one of the, one of the analogies he draws is, is it any sign of lack or imperfection in a fountain that it overflows? Is there something wrong with a fountain that it gets so full that water spills over the edges and that's what it's designed to do? No, no one would say that's an imperfection in the fountain. The fountain is so full, it is so perfect that it overflows necessarily. That's the way he describes God's creation of the world, that God is so full, his perfection's so complete that he, that he takes joy, that he finds good in extending those perfections in other manifestations of them to display what he's like through what he's made. Another way that he describes it is as, as God is like a sun and the sun's beams radiate through all the world. The created world that we live in and enjoy, it's like beams that radiate ultimately from God. And, and when we look at things like the smile of a child or, or like the beauty of a day like this one or the flowers that are all over the city right now, what we see in those are beams radiating from a beautiful and wise and all-powerful creator. They tell us what God's like, and that's why they're good. I'm not an artist, but I, my understanding from having friends who are artists, this is Nashville after all, they're everywhere, my understanding is that artists create works of beauty not just to make money, but to express themselves. They create because they have to. Because they have to express something that they have been given the ability to express. And their work is an extension of who they are. I think that's what this world is. as God's handiwork. And it's good because it expresses Him in so many ways. Now, like the fact that He created everything, question one, this claim that the created world is good, is radical. If you compare it to the other options at the time when it was first written, and if you compare it to other options that are in vogue today. So when it was first written, why was it radical then? One of the most prominent accounts of creation that was on hand when this one was written is one that, that has survived through Babylon. It was a Babylonian account called the Enuma Elish. You can Google it and find it online anywhere. It's really short and it's really interesting. 
this would have been the one that the Israelites, especially after captivity in Babylon, would have, would have been familiar with. It would have been the, the competing account to their own. In that account, the material world is created not as something that's good or beautiful, as an overflow of, of goodness, but at, through an act of violence. The, the material world is a result of two gods who did war with each other, went to war. One of them was killed, and out of the slain body of this god, the, uh, it's divided in one into the, to the sky, one to make the material earth. It's, it's not a reflection of anything good, but a reflection of violence. Humans, particularly, are created as slaves of this god in this Babylonian account that was parallel to the one that, that the Israelites held. You see how different that is? How radical it would be that this created world is not, it's not a result of some violent forces, just some slain body that's, that, that is because someone lost, but it's actually created on purpose and to reflect something that is good and beautiful. That changes everything about the way you look at the world. Consider how it compares to other views that are in vogue today. So we, we talked about naturalism, the view that, that everything that is, is everything that's, that's in this material world is all that there is, and there's no, there's no forces from outside that ever work in this world. I think if you, if you really are consistent in that view, that what you have to say is that what we have now is the result of a mysterious accident, and it's arrived in its present form through lots of random adaptations to circumstances. It's not intentional in any way. It's, it's circumstantial. It's not the result of design, but everything that is is reduced to chemicals and materials. And we, can, we can look at, the, at something that's formed like that and, be, and, and find it remarkable. We can find it interesting, I think, that, that, that the, we can still look at the mountains and say, wow, isn't that interesting that this is what happened when these forces came together? But I don't know that we could ever look at this world and call it beautiful if, it's, if, if what we have is just a product of, of these chemicals and material things that have adapted and changed over time. I think what, what we have in Genesis is an ascription of value. This thing is good. And, and that kind of value, that kind of celebration of good or beauty, I think that has to have an, an intentional designer behind it or it doesn't make any sense. In the same way that a, a child who spills paint onto a canvas, we, we might could, I mean, even especially in the modern art today, you might could find that beautiful in some ways. You'd certainly find it remarkable, but it's different from a child who intentionally tries to portray their mother or the tree that they think is really beautiful in their yard and, and does that with some intentionality. There's a difference in those products and in how you relate to them. I think the same thing has to hold true for the way we relate to the world. The Genesis account that God created everything and that he created it as good and that he created it as good because he wanted to express himself. I think that that justifies, I think it even makes necessary that we celebrate the goodness of the world, that we enjoy the taste of really good food, that, that, we, that we relish beautiful scenery, that we, that we really take in the best that music has to offer. What the Genesis account allows us to do is to hear some amazing piece of music and not reduce what we're feeling in that moment to a chemical reaction in our brain that has some sort of unknown survival advantage, but that there's something that's really there. When you feel the way you feel when you listen to a beautiful piece of music, what you are feeling is true and right because it's a response to a beauty that is eternal, and the beauty that's in it is beautiful because it reflects who God is. 
Christians sometimes get a bad rap as those who don't want to enjoy the world that's created. That, 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 that there's, there's a sense that maybe we take the material world as some sort of distraction from the real and true important things of the spirit. And maybe we're guilty of that here and there. I don't know. That's neither here nor there. I think what Genesis 1 gives us, though, is a mandate that we not approach the world that way. Far from a distraction, this material world inspires our spiritual life because it reminds us of the God who is for us everything in Jesus, that his power and wisdom is up to the task. And we can see it because of the amazing result of his hands in this world. I think Christians are the only ones who've really got good reasons to enjoy the world. That's what it comes down to. And that's why this claim is radical and beautiful. So, Genesis 1. It helps us understand the classic question, where do we come from? I think it also gives us insight because of this evaluation that God gives it as good. It gives us insight into why there's something and not nothing. Why God would create. I think finally, it also helps us answer another question that is that is always on the minds of those who really think about the world we live in and how we're supposed to relate to it. Who is in charge? Who is responsible, not just for where things come from, but for how they're governed now? Is there something we're accountable to, some sort of standard out there that we've got to meet, some, some body, some judge that holds it all together and, and will ultimately make all things right? I think a final major emphasis all through this text, all through Genesis 1, that we see in some more of those details that you repeated over and over, is God's absolute authority over everything that he's made. There's no struggle here. This isn't like the Enuma Elish, where the, the, the created world is here because two gods fought together and one lost, and his, his body is torn and made into the material world. There's no struggle here. God speaks. He says a word, and it accomplishes exactly what he intends for it to accomplish. Every, and every day... Every time a creative act is described, we're told God said. And if you fast forward, it was so. God said it was so. God said and it was so. Once more, we see God over and over again naming the things that he's made. That doesn't immediately mean much to us, but in the ancient world, to name something was to have authority over it. It was to have complete control and responsibility for it. You had the right to name if you owned and were responsible for what you, what you had. God names everything, including the things that were, were seen as gods by Israel's neighbors. God not only creates them, but then he speaks what they shall be called. It's this feature of God's work, I think, that Psalm 33 celebrates. I mean, there's lots of examples of this, but Psalm 33 is one of my favorites. It, it, the psalmist says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. There's that authority, right? You're responsible to God. Fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? The psalmist says, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. It's, it, it's this authority. Authority as creator that comes up again and again in hymns to God throughout the Old Testament. Some of those great passages in Isaiah where God is being compared to the false gods of Israel's neighbors, or, or some of those texts in Job where God is responding to Job's protest against the way he's been treated, the way God responds to establish his authority over the world is to describe the fact that he speaks and it happens. So those images like God saying to the seas, you're going to come this far and no further. That's where you stop and they stop. He's in complete authority over the world that he made because that world only exists because of him. 
And because it only exists because of him, he has the right, the absolute right, to command it. Now, again, like the other two, this may seem obvious on the surface, but here's why it mattered then and now. It mattered then because Israel was surrounded by more powerful nations. They claimed more powerful deities. And the things that they claimed were gods, those things were out of Israel's control. Things like the sun and the moon and the rains that they needed to grow food that would supply their, their needs and, and, and feed their families. These were forces that were legitimately beyond Israel's ability to control. And their more powerful neighbors were claiming these things were divine. What this text insists is that not only were those things created, but God and God alone stands in absolute control over them. He has authority, complete sovereignty over the very forces that Israel needs if she is to survive. It's the same kind of claim that Jesus makes in the Gospels where he he reminds his followers not to fear, to be anxious for anything because look at this created world. Look at what it represents. Look at how well God has clothed it and cared for it. And the same God who is authoritative and sovereign over this world exists and extends his hand for your good. That's why it mattered then. It was encouragement to Israel. The last thing I want to say is something about why it matters now. I think there are a couple of reasons in our particular day and age why this truth about God creating things and therefore standing in authority over them, who, who, who has the right to speak and to be obeyed, why that matters so much to us in our environment. Let me give you two examples, two examples of why this makes so much difference. The first is that this truth that God is in control, that he has the right to command and to be heard, that he is, has authority over what he's made, that truth makes right and wrong, the distinction between right and wrong, a meaningful and lasting distinction. Here's what I mean by that. I think in, in, in naturalistic ways of looking at the world, I mean, we've been talking about this all through the sermon, uh, the, the view that the, the created world, or, or the material world rather, is all that is, that there's, there's nothing else that stands over it and, it, and it has developed as it has developed through chance and adaptation. I don't see any way to avoid, on that view, saying that there's no real distinction between what's right and what's wrong. That really what you've got is those who are powerful enough to enforce their will, enforce their will. And those who aren't powerful enough to resist, don't resist. Without some sort of universal standard that hangs over there, each culture, many philosophers now admit, each culture sets its own rules. And those rules are set by those who have the power to enforce those rules. If you, if, if you have the power to kill, to punish, if those rules are disobeyed, you have the power to set what those rules are. And the implication here is that might makes right. The ability to enforce makes it right. And that takes away any kind of grounding for saying that the, the atrocities committed by Hitler and the Nazis were actually wrong. Why? If we're here simply as a product of blind chance and what matters is your ability to enforce your will on others, then Hitler makes sense. Hitler himself owned up to that. And he justified what he was doing based on the supremacy of his race in the, in the, in the attempt to survive. That we don't have any basis for condemning terrorism, for condemning child slavery, for condemning the brutal suppression of women. We're all just material forces 
struggling to survive, so anything goes. But if there's a God who made this world by his word, if there's a God who stands over it in absolute authority, a God who established in this world that he made a moral code that's in all of us and that testifies to us the difference between right and wrong, not perfectly, but truly, then it makes sense that we're outraged at the abuses of Qaddafi or the Taliban or Enron and, and, and all that scandal. It makes sense when we see injustice and hate it and act against it. This view of God, a God who stands with authority over what he's made, justifies moral outrage that comes so naturally to us. And therefore, I think it explains the world we live in better than the alternatives. That's one example. Final example is that this truth, God's authority over what he's made, this truth shows us why Jesus matters so much. This truth shows us why Jesus is so important. Because if this authoritative creator God exists, and if he has the authority to command and to be obeyed, that truth is of staggering importance given the reality that none of us can deny, the reality of our sin. Ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that the same inner outrage that we experience when we see something like the abuses of a Qaddafi or, or the Taliban, the same inner outrage that we experience when we recognize abuses of others, that same conscience, no matter how dulled it is, tells us that we have violated our own code too, that we have failed to live up to the standards that we hold others to. That's what, that's what all of us experience at some time or another if we're really honest. And ultimately, this text tells us those standards that we failed are not first and foremost ours, but they're God's. And it is a frightful, it is a terrifying thing to disobey, to be guilty of treason against a God who has absolute authority to command. Think about it. How we judge the severity of a wrong depends entirely on who it's committed against. There's a different standard for telling a lie to a friend than there is for telling a lie to the courts. Because the courts are the collective authority that have the right to your truthfulness in a way that your, your friend does, but not on the same level. Authority is what makes the difference. Or consider maybe even a better example. If you betray your friend's trust versus betrayal of your government, well, betrayal of your government is treason. Betrayal of a friend's trust may cost you a friend, Betrayal of your government, of that authority, will cost you your life in just about any area other than, era other than our own. The difference is in the authority that that thing, that entity commands. And what Genesis 1 tells us is that God has absolute authority over everything that he made. So much authority that all he has to do is speak and he's obeyed. To have offended this God carries with it an infinite weight. So we've been looking at Mark. We've been looking at Jesus, who told us he came to establish a new kingdom, a kingdom in which it's possible for us to relate in peace and harmony to the God who we've offended. The fact that God has authority over his world tells us why that's such good news for us. Ultimately, it's good news because Jesus himself, through his death, through the death that right now we're looking forward to as we celebrate Good Friday, Jesus, through that death, has made it possible for us to relate to God with joy and in harmony as it was intended, even though we've offended, even though we've disobeyed the God who has an absolute right to be obeyed.
Ultimately, Jesus came as a foundation for a new creation, a new kingdom in which God's authority is joyfully embraced. And our call is to respond to Jesus' offer by submitting ourselves to him, by by honoring and submitting to his authority now with joy as an anticipation of what's coming in the new creation. That's the good news of Jesus, and it's, it's good news so much more clearly if we understand Genesis 1 than if we don't. Will you pray with me? Genesis 1, Lord, we has shown us so much about your character. We just pray for eyes to see it. It's shown us so much about what you deserve. We pray for eyes and for hearts to willingly grant that to you. It's shown us so much reason to enjoy the world that we live in. We pray for eyes that will see not just the pain and the sorrow, but the beauty that there is on every hand. We pray for eyes and for hearts to see and to enjoy this world as an extension of our Father. That's a supernatural thing. And so we leave it in your hands and we we pray for it confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen.